Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. First, I want to um, ask as we start the talk, um, if you ever have some somewhat deep metaphysical questions that you'd love the answers to, let me see your hand. Okay, let me, let me just hear, what kind, of, what kind of questions, who knows, we might find the answer tonight. You know? What kind of questions come through your mind that you really wish you knew or, oh thanks Andrew, or um, that, that maybe snag you as far as um, spiritual practice? Uh, I had to start with a, a bit of humor on this because the first one that came to, came to me as a kid was Bill Cosby's album. Why is there air? That's and that kind of introduced me to the deep, deep thoughts. And that was that was the start of your spiritual that's right. life. Yeah, that's a, that's a good. And one. it was great I, answers too, because it was so the the answers were so direct, like to blow up balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. So you got your, your answer right there. You didn't have to go anywhere. Thank goodness you kept on going. Uh, uh, what, are, what questions have come to you and uh, come into your heart and maybe you wrestle with? Or? Um, I heard recently about a much-beloved spiritual leader in the East Bay who had a newborn child that died. Mm-hmm. And I found myself asking, what does this person think about his or her God, and what do I think about mm-hmm. God? The, the, that as that you're kind facing, of thing can happen. When you're facing the death of a, new, of a newborn child, you know, how, how to cope with that or how, how to make sense of that. Okay, thank you. Sit. You have a hand up here. Uh, just hold on a second. Thanks. Let's see. Raise your hand so Andrew can. Get to you. Oh, the eternal. Why am I here? Why am I here? That's a big. And how many people have had that one? Yeah. Okay. Good. Not alone. Sit, uh, Joel, behind you. What is it that I am, and what is it that I am a part of? Mm. Let me know when you get your answer, okay? Yeah? Let's see. For, for me, instead of why am I here, it's, uh, I've thought many times why we are here. Mm-hmm. On how did we get onto this planet? On this planet Earth? Yes. Mm-hmm. How did we get onto this planet? That's very similar to the question that I would ask when I was when I was little. What does it mean to be alive? That was the one that would turn me inside out. Yeah. Um, rather than meaning, I've always wondered um, just uh, what was I before I was born, and what will I be after uh, I die. Mm-hmm. Good, great one. Anyone else on here? Um, I was recently wandering around Jerusalem in the old city a lot, mm-hmm. several weeks ago, from one monotheistic religious place to another where you go very fast. Mm-hmm. And the question that keep, kept coming to me is, why is there war? Why is there war? Mm-hmm. Good question. Mm-hmm. Great. Right. Over here, oh, Let's see. Take two more. There's one here. Well, actually, okay. Three more. Yes? Leanna? 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we have a lot of DNA they call junk? Just because they don't know what it does, what does it do? What about that part of our brain that we supposedly don't have access to? <laughs> uh-huh. How do we use that? And what's the difference between, you know, how do we travel a path with mastery, and at what point does that will and concept of, you know, exerting our willful focus need to move into a place of surrender and co-creation? Mm. And where, what are we co-creating with? Uh-huh. So Those are much, my questions. How much is there will, and how much are we... Are we participating in it or surrendering and just allowing it to happen? Well, you got a lot of good questions here. Yeah. Linda, and then... Uh, well, where do people go when they die? And it does seem to me that they're not here, and yet it seems to me that they can't be gone. And if somebody knows, I think that we should establish phone service. If somebody knows... Knows where they are, we should establish phone service. <laughs> okay. And uh, one, one last one over here, Timothy. So this is a sort of a meta-psychological pro- question, mm-hmm. which is, why is there an unconscious? Why is... There an unconscious? Why is there an unconscious? Yeah, where pain and anger goes, and then we create the exact opposite of what we're trying to create. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay. Well, we all have, or most of us, have these questions that come to us that uh, can be doorways to inspire to look without necessarily even getting the answer. Um, as as mine was, what does it mean to be alive? For Ralph was was saying, um, and then there are sometimes we can ask these questions, and they can really trip us up. Like you know, if if the question "Why do bad things happen to good people?" help makes you contract and feel outrage and anger at life and bitterness, which is an understandable response, um, it can get in the way of our deepening spiritual life. So it's not that these questions are wrong or right one way or another, but they're, they're things that come to most every human being. What is what does it mean to be here? Why am I here? And where am I going? And things like that. Well, this is this discourse that I wanted to share um, is, um, is one in which one of the Buddha's um, monks has these questions and it's really driving him crazy. So he decides he needs to ask the Buddha. Uh, I'll read a little bit. This is uh, Majima Nikaya number 63, uh, the Kula Malankya Sutta, or the Shorter Discourse to Malankya Putta. Um, While the Venerable Malankya Putta was alone in meditation, the following thought arose in his mind. These speculative views have been undeclared by the Blessed One, that means he hasn't give us, given us an answer. Set aside and rejected by him, namely, the world is eternal or the world is not eternal. Or the world is finite or the world is infinite. Or the soul is the same as the body the soul, or the soul is one thing and the body another. Or after death, a Tathagata exists. Tathagata is a name for the Buddha. After death, after the Buddha's death, he keeps on existing. Or after death, a Tathagata does not exist. Or after death, a Tathagata both exists and does not exist. Or after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor doesn't exist. 
This guy was spinning his wheels a bit. (laughs) The blessed one does not declare these to me, and I do not approve of and accept the fact that he doesn't declare these to me. That is, give me an answer. So I shall go to him and ask the meaning of this. If he declares to me either the world is eternal, the world is not eternal, etc., etc., gives me the answers to my questions, basically, then I will continue to lead the holy life under him. And if he doesn't declare this to me, if he doesn't give me an answer, then I'll abandon the training and, and return to the low life. So this guy has got... I, I, it, uh, I think it's a, a Pali word, chutzpah, um, <laughs> in there. And uh, he says, okay, let's see. I, I need some answers here if I'm going to be going on. So when it was evening, he rose from meditation, at least he was meditating all day, and went to the, to the Buddha, and after paying, him, paying homage, sat down on one side and told him... Um, Here, venerable sir, while I was alone in meditation, the following thought arose in my mind. These speculative views have been undeclared by the Blessed One. And says all those views. And he says, um, uh, let the Blessed One declare to me one way or another. If the Blessed One does not know either the world is eternal or the world is not eternal, then, then it's straightforward. If you don't know and... and, and uh, and do not say and and do not see to say I do not know. Oh, sorry. If you don't know and you don't see, then just say I don't know and I I don't see. Just it's okay. It's okay with me. But just tell me, do you know or you don't know? Right. And then he goes through the whole, all the whole, the whole list. The Buddha responds. <clears throat> How then, Malankyaputta, did I ever say to you, um, come, Malankyaputta, lead the holy life under, under me, and I will declare to you if the world is eternal or it's not eternal, etc., etc., etc. Did I ever say I was going to answer those questions when you first became a monk? Uh, no, venerable sir. Uh, did you ever tell me, uh, did you ever tell me I will lead the holy life Underneath the blessed, under the blessed one, uh, and if if I'll declare to you the world is blah blah blah, no venerable sir. That being so, misguided man, um, who are you, and what are and who are you, and what are you abandoning? If anyone should say thus, I will not lead the holy life under the blessed one, blah blah blah, um, then that person would still remain undeclared by the Tathagata, then that would still remain undeclared by the Tathagata, and meanwhile that person would die. If somebody is waiting for me to answer all those questions, you're going to be waiting a long time, and eventually you'll die before I give you an answer to these questions. So, let go for a little while. Suppose, and this is a very famous um, simile, Suppose Malankyaputta, a person was wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, brought a surgeon to treat him. And the man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. And he would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out the, this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or middle height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I knew whether the man who wounded me lives in such and such a village or town or city, until I knew whether the bow was, was a long bow or a crossbow, until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated, it's really laying it on, until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, 
until I know with what kind of sinew, sinew the shaft that wounded me was bound, whether that of an ox or a buffalo or a lion or a monkey, until I know what kind of an arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped or curved or barbed or calf-toothed or oleander. It's interesting how many different arrows they had. All of this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile, he would die. So too, Malankyaputta, if anyone should say thus, I will not lead the holy life until these questions are answered, that person would die. Whether there is the view the world is eternal or the world is not eternal, there's birth, or the view the world is not eternal, there is birth, there is aging, there is death, there are sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, and the destruction of these, which I prescribe here and now. And so all of these views I have left undeclared. Why have I left them undeclared? Why have I not answered? Because it is unbeneficial. It, is, it does not belong to the fundamentals of the holy life that I teach. It does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to enlightenment, to nibbana. That's why I've left it undeclared. And what have I declared? This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way to leading to the cessation of suffering, I've declared. Why? Because those things are beneficial. They belong to the fundamentals of the holy life and they lead to dispassion, cessation, peace, enlightenment, nibbana. That's why I've declared those. Therefore, remember what I've left undeclared as undeclared and remember what I've left, what I've declared as declared. That's what he said, and the venerable Malankyaputta was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Mm. And actually, as the punchline goes, um, in his old, old age, he stayed as a monk, and in his old age, um, he heard a very short discourse, very short, by the Buddha, and became fully enlightened. He didn't need a whole lot of questions answered that. Just he heard it, then he went to sit with it, and then uh, he became enlightened. So, let's just reflect on this for a moment. We get attached to so many views and ideas if you are a Buddhist scholar, you might know a whole lot of stuff. But you can get just as attached to those views, even if they are, um, they make sense and they come from very wise minds, including the Buddhas. But he said, don't get attached to the views. Check it out for yourself and see are these views leading you to a direct experience of freedom or are they just speculation? Now there's nothing wrong with speculation. As I say, I can get very inspired by my own way of holding the universe, my own way of comprehending what it all means and how it gets put together. But to remember, this is just this human brain, this very limited human mind, trying to comprehend that which is beyond comprehension. And when you put it in that perspective, you see, okay, what really matters? What's going to free the heart, liberate 
the heart, the sure heart's release or free the mind and not to get so bogged down with ideas and opinions. Mm. The Buddha in another discourse, he says, um, another famous uh, discourse where he's with his monks and, uh, and whole, uh, all his disciples and he stops and he picks up some leaves and he says, what's more? I don't know what inspired him to say this, but he said, what's more? The leaves in my hand or all the leaves in the forest? They caught on. They got the answer. Uh, all the leaves in the forest are more blessed one. And he said, I just want you to know that what I know compared to what I'm sharing with you is like all the leaves in the forest compared to the leaves in my hand. But what I am sharing with you, the, these handful of leaves are all you need to know to come to the highest freedom and so it would just confuse and distract from the deeper goal of why I'm teaching. And it's said that one of the unknowables, one of the four unknowables, I mentioned this recently, one of the, the four things that would drive you crazy, can drive you crazy, is trying to understand the range of the mind of a Buddha along with the range of a mind in deepest concentration, um, how karma works and how it all started. That's one of the four unknowables. You know, how did it all begin? That's one of the four imponderables, it's called. So, as we're doing our spiritual work, it th it's important to get in touch with the ideas and opinions or the speculative views that either block us, confuse us, create some doubt in us, or inspire us. There are some things in the Pali Canon that raise one's eyebrows. You don't have to believe it. There are some things that are really hard for me to believe. For instance, um, it's said that the coming of the next Buddha, Buddha-to-be, who is uh, prophesied to be the Buddha Maitreya, or Metteya, will happen when the lifespan of human beings goes down to 10 years and goes as high as, I think it's 50,000 years, as I recall. That's a stretch for me. I kind of put that one aside. But as far as what the Buddha said about how the mind works and waking up, that one I see for myself. Yeah, that's true. So if you have some difficulties with dogma, somebody was saying, you were saying just at the break, you know, if you say, what is this Buddhist stuff? The beauty of what the Buddha taught is just check it out for yourself. Many years ago, uh, when I was first getting into this, uh, into spiritual practice, and I, I, I've shared before, I come from a, uh, before I got into Buddhist practice and, and uh, philosophy, uh, I was very inspired by uh, devotional um, practices 
from from the Hindu devotional practices is uh, Be Here Now, Ram Dass's book Be Here Now and uh, Neem Karoli Baba, his guru, really inspired me tremendously. And um, this is in 1975 when uh, Ram Dass was doing a, a class in New York um, and Joseph, my teacher, uh, my Dharma teacher, Buddhist Dharma teacher, um, said, hey, you might check out Ramdas because he knew that I really was uh, moved by Ramdas and I was getting a little bit lonely in New York City. And I went to, um, to see Ramdas to see if it was appropriate for me to join the class. And um, as part of the conversation, he said, um, and the class was mostly Hindus and doing chanting with mala beads and lots of uh, kirtan and things like that. And uh, that seemed a little bit, it was inspiring on the one hand, feeling that heart, that heart quality, but it didn't seem as clean as, uh, as, as Buddhist meditation. Uh, but there was Maharaji saying, you know, uh, Nikroli Baba saying, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. Okay, I try to ma- that makes sense to me. But then there was the Buddhist path that seemed so dry. But they were both kind of pointing to full liberation. Anyway, as part of the, the condition, he said, if you want to be in this class, um, you have to um, promise me something. I said, what? He said, you have to um, stop doing Vipassana meditation. I said, what? He said, you have to let go of Vipassana. I said, yeah, I I don't know. It was the one thing that I believed in. I I had looked around and finally something was helping me. And... uh, he said, it's okay if you don't do it. You know, you, you can just, um, you know, it's okay. You don't have to be in this class. But if you want to check it out, then you have to, uh, you have to give me your meditation. You, there were a number of things. Being celibate, doing yoga, doing lots of other kinds of spiritual practices, your diet, uh, uh, you know, clean diet and all. And I was ready to agree to all of that. Uh, but I wasn't quite ready to let go of the meditation. I said, whoa, uh, I need some time to think about that. He said, okay, you just give me a call when you're ready. And um, I called Joseph. Uh, I said, look, he wants me to stop doing Vipassana. What should I do? And Joseph said, well, what's he going to do? Tell you to not be aware? He said, just, if it feels right, go ahead, don't worry about it. You can always pick up the meditation later on. I said, okay. Uh, And you're supposed to do some some meditation, like two hours of meditation a day. But I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And uh, finally, I... I called and I figured, well, am I supposed to be chanting Sri Ram J Ram or something like that? And I was really perplexed. And finally, I um, and I, I said to him, I said, "Okay, I'm. I'll join the class. I want to join the class. I want to. I want to learn whatever there is to learn. Um, so I'm ready." And then he said, "I said, uh, I just have some. I have one." He said, "Oh, okay, great." Glad to have you here. And then I said, uh, one question, what kind of meditation am I supposed to do? And there was a long pause, and he said, well, you can do Vipassana. <laughs> I said, what? He said, it's a great practice, moment to moment, mindfulness. You feel your breath in and out. You're just with experience arising and passing, you know. But, but, and he started laughing, you know. And I saw his game. I was so attached. It was, 
It was the biggest attachment I had. I couldn't give up my meditation. And finally, when I was ready to give up even that, I said, okay, enjoy. Oh, do Vipassana. It was a really great teaching because if you're beholden to anything, and as you, you might know in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth the cause of, atta- of, of suffering is attachment. One of the four attachments is attachment to um, what's called rites and rituals, which is another way of saying um, your spiritual um, sadhana, your spiritual, if I do this, if I say the right prayers, if I go to the right church or use the right mala or wear the right clothes or whatever, I'll be saved. And the Buddha said, don't get attached to the form. That's just form. It can be skillful. It can be really useful. But see it as skillful means. Just as a a kind of um, um, follow-up to that that exchange with Ramana. So I go to the, the first class, finally, and there's maybe about 35 people in the class. And um, everybody is chanting and doing their malas and stuff like that. And I feel kind of a little bit awkward, but all right, I'm hanging in there with it. And there's this one, one fellow, there was, there, he was having dialogues with, uh, with the, the people at the class. And there's this one guy who was really into his head and uh, coming from a Buddhist kind of stance not into the, the devotional way at all. And he go, went back and forth. These are very fierce times. He goes back and forth with this guy. And in the middle of it, um, with this kind of Dharma debate, he turns to me and he says, um, he's the only friend you have in this room. Yeah. And then five minutes later, he kicked him out of the class. <laughs> Oh my God, what did I get into? <clears throat> but actually, it was great being in that, in that class. He didn't kick him out because cause he was a Buddhist, but just uh, there, there was something about the attitude that the, that the guy was having. But I went through that year, it was just about a year, going back and forth, you know, who's got the truth? They say such different things. There is a soul, there's no self. There's, you know, all kinds of things that don't match between uh, Hindu and, and Buddhist thought. Some that do, but a lot that don't. Essentially, the idea of soul or not soul. And I went back and forth saying, what is my path? Am I a bhakta or a Buddhist? Back and forth. And Ramdas would keep on saying, don't worry about picking your path. Your path will pick you. You just keep listening to what is so inside without debating in your mind and see what inspires you and moves you. Within the Buddhist world, there's lots of different philosophies. There's, you can be a, a Theravadan or a, a Zeni or, uh, or Chan Buddhism, which is where, what the monastery uh, comes out of the Chan lineage. Chan and Zen, similar Mahayana from China and Korea and Japan. Or you can be a Tibetan practitioner. And they say different things. Uh, there's, in, in the Theravadan, when you are a, a, um, a fully enlightened being, supposedly, you don't return. That's your last birth. Even though the Buddha didn't answer that, that question in that, that discourse. But supposedly, that's it. You've finished your round of, of births. In the Mahayana lineage, the, the, Tibetan, the Vajrayana lineage, you keep on coming back after you're enlightened for the benefit of all beings. 
or there's different ideas about what happens at the moment of enlightenment, whether there's whether the mind stops and there's a cessation of consciousness, or in some um, some lineages and traditions the, in the in Tibetan, there is nibbana, nirvana is happening all the time. And it's not a stopping of consciousness, it's getting in touch with the ground of being or the pure awareness that's, that's here all the time. Lots of different kinds of philosophical ideas that can drive you crazy. And as a matter of fact, uh, it drove my teacher, Joseph, crazy for a while because after many years of being in the Theravadan lineage and really taking to heart the teachings and believing most most of them quite literally, then he was very inspired to be around some great Tibetan masters. And he was saying, well, what's going on? They're saying one thing, this guy's saying another. The, the one that really, that really shook him was uh, he went to, um, to see this great master, Dujum Rinpoche, who was the head of the Nyingma lineage, and it said on the poster, Dujum Rinpoche, um, who was quite an amazing being, I was uh, fortunate enough to be around him, um, reincarnation of Sariputra. Sari, Sariputra or Sariputta in, in, the, in the, uh, the Theravadan was a fully enlightened being that there's no reincarnation of. So he's saying, what? is going on. Here's this great master, Dujum Rinpoche, who's supposed to be the reincarnation of somebody who is not reincarnated anymore. And this spun him around for the next few years. And fortunately for all of us, uh, inspired him to write a really wonderful book called One Dharma, where he was wrestling with these questions and finally let go of needing an answer, came up with one of the great contributions of 20th and 21st century Dharma, his answer to all of it, who knows? But skillful means can inspire you. And the line, the, the, the title One Dharma comes out of a line from uh, the Third Zen Patriarch that says, um, there is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. There is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. And one could say the same thing whether you call it Hinduism or Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism, or um, all the great religions, they're pointing to something that cannot be um, described with finite concepts. There, I love this line uh, uh, from Ram Tirtha. He's an, a great Indian uh, sage. He says, um, he said, God defined is God confined? I love that. God defined is God confined. Whether you call it God or the Dharma, they're just placeholders for the mystery. So, I um, encourage us to let the questions inspire without needing to find out the answer. I remember when I was a kid, I used to, th or even uh, growing after I, when I grew up a little bit, I used to think there was a right answer for everything. That if I, you know, remember when you were in school, I don't know if they had it uh, when you went to school, but we used to have math textbooks that had the answer in the back. You know, you kind of kept from looking Okay, what does it say on page 372? What's the right answer? Oh, that's the answer, right? 
I, I used to think there was this big book in the sky. If I could only get to the right, that's the answer. But really, it's so much more um, evocative and rich and opening to, as Rilke says, live the questions instead of needing to get the answers. So to notice any views that you might have, any ways that you get stuck on dogma, and to surrender to the mystery of it that not only says who knows, but wow. Too much for the mind to to comprehend. And that's where, as somebody was saying, the surrender comes. And it's in that surrender that we let go of our thinking mind and we understand another line from the Third Zen Patriarch that says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. So, I'll stop here and see any thoughts or questions that might come up from that. We have a few minutes, and if you can stay, that would be, I'd really appreciate it, and we'll, we'll uh, close with a loving kindness. Any thoughts on the topic or about practice? Yeah, Jim. Oh, thanks. i got to turn it on. I was talking with someone not too long ago that um, had spent a lot of time with Powak. And I was uh, asking about some of these things in the suttas that are difficult to believe. Mm -hmm. And um, I was told, well, no one really believes all that stuff. I said, well, Powak, for instance. I mean, he really pushes for the straight and narrow. Doesn't he at least buy all that stuff. And people like that. And um, I, I was told, he grunts. He's so dedicated to the Dharma that he won't ever say anything about, I don't believe this, or that's wrong, or that's tough to believe. He just grunts. Mm-hmm. I said, so you really think he doesn't believe all this stuff? He says, of course not. Mm-hmm. He, but he wouldn't say so. He just grunts. Mm. I went, ah. Mm. So even the people that are really dedicated and even, even don't talk about it, it's like, okay, so if I'm, ha- if I'm having trouble believing, people kind of up at a pretty high level. Mm. Maybe, I don't th- I'm not sure that he doesn't have trouble not believing. He just, mm-hmm. just grunts. Yeah. And there are some people who don't grunt, who are very wise, who say, yeah, it's so. And so um, there's this, uh, this phrase by, I think it's Coleridge, who uh, talks about suspension of disbelief. Where you just, was it Coleridge that said that? Where you just put down your knowing that that can't be so. I don't know, it, maybe it will be so that Maitreya comes when it's 10 years and 50,000 years. Who knows? But to just put it down and say, I don't know, uh, whether it's the grunt or somebody who you, who you respect who says, yeah, I believe that. Okay. I don't know. Hmm. Thank you. So I really yeah, appreciated everything you were talking about tonight because I get very confused by what I call the dogma that surrounds the various schools Mm -hmm. and sects of Buddhism. As a result, I tend to not want to do the study. It's much easier to do the practice and just allow the other stuff to go by. But there is this basic thing in Hinayana, Mahayana, Theravadan about taking the Bodhisattva vow, Mm. which... um, I have never done because I don't feel like I want to (laughs) 
reach enlightenment and then come back for everybody. I, I think, you know, you do your practice while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. What is the Theravadan approach? Is, is, it, is it Hinayana, Mahayana, its own classification? I mean, where does it stand with the with Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva vow? Yeah. Well, Theravadan is, uh, Theravada, which means the way of the elders, the earliest teachings, which is what Tibetans or Zenis call Hinayana. Hinayana, which means lesser vehicle. Mahayana, greater vehicle. Vajrayana, that's Tibetan, supreme vehicle. It was a guy who once said, lesser vehicle, greater vehicle, all vehicles will be towed at owner's expense. Because if you're owning your vehicle, my vehicle is the right vehicle. But the, the Theravadan would say, yeah, the Bodhisattva, uh, classical Theravadan view would be a Bodhisattva is somebody who is um, committed to becoming a fully enlightened Buddha. There aren't many of those. Um, so it's a very strong, determined vow. Like the Buddha, before he was the Buddha, was called the Bodhisattva or Bodhisattva. However, I've been with um, Ajahn Amro and other monks who we've all taken the Bodhisattva vow together with the Dalai Lama. So, and some some of his some of his uh, colleagues have kind of said, "What's a Theravadan monk taking the Bodhisattva vow?" But as as Ajahn Amro says, you know, if you're you're not around to take the vow, you're not or, uh, there. Uh, when there's not a self, it's not like I'm going to become a Buddha. When seeing through the sense of self, then there's not that identification with the process. So he has a different view than another Theravadan monk. But it's different for a for a classical Theravadan taking uh, taking Bodhisattva vow. It means I'm going to be a Buddha. I'll be the next Buddha. Or what after? But I've taken the Bodhisattva vow. Okay. Well, one last thing over there. No, we'll, we'll close. Yeah, no, because it's recorded. Thank you. Close. Put it really close. So we can hear you. Because it won't be That's recorded good. unless I do that this That's way. That's it. Okay. Uh, I, I want to mention this wonderful book that. I stumbled upon called Stumbling on Happiness that was, uh, has been written by a Harvard psychologist. And um, actually, I think I, I read an article in Tricycle magazine many years ago that really hooked me in, like I've got to find this book and read it. And the part that really fascinated me, the hook for me, was that they had done these... Um, uh, like he st- he's, first he tells this story, like, what if one day you opened your door and there was a dozen roses uh, at the doorstep and there was a, a wonderful card with this very sweet sentiment, I love you, but no signature. So how much mileage would you get out of that feeling good about, oh, someone loves me, and not knowing, as opposed to someone who would, you know, someone writes, I love you, and it's like, wow, that's really great. Are you going to remember that, like, how many times throughout the year, and the next year, and the following year? Oh, those roses. And that is the example of a lot of studies that they've done where people are actually happier when they don't know the answer to something. The really, the kicker for it was 100% of the people who were asked, who knew, who then found out and knew Mm -hmm. that they were happier not knowing something, when they were asked, well, would you like to know the answer, 100% of the people said yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's hard to stay with the mystery. Yeah. So, let's practice that. 
So, okay, I'll just uh, close now. As, and, and my last thought is I was going to read from another uh, passage from the, where the Buddha says, you know, all views basically just are traps. Let go of all the views and look for yourself and see what's true. So for a moment, as you're sitting here, uh, just uh, relax into the mystery. You're alive. That's pretty amazing. Life is happening through you right now. With a heart that can love and a mind that can be aware and a body that works. How did all that happen? No dogma can explain that. And to just feel the mystery and let your goodness be directed at yourself and all beings. May all come to understand the real peace beyond understanding. May all open to their true nature. May all share their love well. May all know the highest happiness. Remembering, uh, I just want a moment to remember Shanti. Shanti, thank you for all your service and may your journey be a good one, feeling all the love coming your way and your own goodness. And may our coming together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all find happiness and peace. Thank you very much. Mm. Have a great week. Mm. Enjoy the mystery.